Good morning, I'm Chris Williams, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today on the show, we're going inside the minds of psychopaths. What makes them different than everyone else? What makes them tick? And whether or not they're as dangerous as we think they are. You might be thinking, I'd know a psychopath if I saw one. They're antisocial, weird, dangerous looking. They're the guys in movies who kill, torture, and manipulate. The bad guys. Well, picking a psychopath out of a crowd isn't as easy as you might think. And defining psychopathy isn't so clear-cut either. Fordham University psychology professor and forensic clinical psychologist Barry Rosenfeld helps clear up the idea of how psychopathy is measured and why it can't be diagnosed. One of the things I noticed when I was doing research on psychopathy is that within the field, there's a lot of disparity over sort of how to study it and how to define it. So what do you have to say about that? Well, I think there's less disparity over how to study it than there is over how to define it. And by define it, I guess what I mean is specifically measure it. So... Uh, Psychopathy evolved pretty dramatically in the 1980s when a guy named Bob Hare published a, an instrument called the Psychopathy Checklist, and it gave us really the first systematic way to measure psychopathy. And what's happened over the, what, three-plus decades since then is as we've done more and more research and we started to kind of expand the boundaries around what that means and how does this phenomenon, or as we like to say in science, this construct look in different cultures, in different genders, at different ages, we've started to, to realize it's a more multifaceted phenomenon. And so that maybe the sort of simple definition of these are the psychopaths and these are not the, the non-psychopaths isn't really a very viable way to think about it. So we've gotten a more nuanced understanding of it, and we debate a lot about how we should conceptualize it. By and large, we still rely very heavily on, on Hare's measure, the psychopathy checklist, as our single most widely used instrument for saying how much psychopathy does any individual person exhibit. There, there's a lot of misunderstandings about what psychopathy means, and, and I'll see people in court say, this person is psychopathic, therefore they must be kept in a hospital or kept in a prison because they're too dangerous to be released, as if psychopathy were equivalent to dangerousness. So not all criminals would exhibit signs of psychopathy? No. In fact, uh, that's one of the advantages of this kind of refined construct. W what we know is that probably around 20% of incarcerated felons would be labeled as psychopaths. And, and I say labeled because it's not a diagnosis. We don't have diagnostic criteria. We just have a checklist. And when people score high on the checklist, we say, oh, they're probably psychopathic. But that's very different from a diagnosis. When we ascribe a diagnosis, we have other requirements, for example, that if we were to think of it as a personality disorder or a personality style, we'd expect to see it across many situations. That's what makes it, that's what makes it a series of traits, not necessarily a diagnosis per se. So if not all criminals are psychopathic, then we can assume that not all psychopaths are criminals? Yeah, that's, there's reasonable evidence to suggest that too. In fact, you know, one of the big points of debate 
in the psychopathy world is to what extent is criminality central to the construct, to the definition of psychopathy. And one of the big criticisms of Hare's psychopathy checklist is that it made criminal behavior too central. So there's become a very big source of, it's become a big source of debate as to whether criminal behavior is a component of psychopathy or if it's what we call an epiphenomenon. It's something that is as a, that occurs with some frequency as a result of the psychopathy. You know, if you're impulsive and if you're remorseless and don't feel guilt for your for your actions and you're very self-centered it stands to reason that you might be more inclined to engage in criminal behavior if you've got behavioral problems things like that but the absence of that certainly doesn't mean you don't have those the absence of that that criminal behavior certainly doesn't mean that you don't have those other core features so we've often talked about psychopaths in the the finance world the extent to which uh, that that helps people become successful in the finance world that impulsivity that grandiosity that risk willingness to take risks that assertiveness a lot of the character traits that we ascribe to psychopathy have a lot of real advantages in the world of business but someone like that wouldn't score too high on the checklist right or or could they could they you know have most of the things on the checklist and still be able to channel that towards a career um they probably as the as the way the the checklist is currently constructed they probably wouldn't score above the cutoff for identifying as psychopathic i think most of us in the field don't think of it as an either or phenomenon we think of it as a continuum so you could have a pretty high level of psychopathy and and obviously the person who's been successful they're going to be aspects of psychopathy that they probably don't show uh, like irresponsibility, like early behavioral problems. You don't see a lot of successful businessmen who were kicked out of their elementary school for fighting, Mm -hmm. Uh, things like that. This is Chris Williams on WFUV 90.7, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations. We'll hear more from Dr. Rosenfeld later in the show. But first, a story about getting an inside perspective to the mind of a psychopath. Dr. James Fallon is a professor at the University of California, Irvine, who teaches psychiatry and human behavior. Besides studying in the field, there's another reason I decided to talk to Dr. Fallon. In 2006, he was studying the brain scans of criminals and also doing a study on Alzheimer's. It was during this study that he made a discovery. So we're looking for the genes involved in Alzheimer's. We did the same successfully for schizophrenia. Was part of that, we had all of the patients done, and we needed more controls. We had to get them done quickly. So I, you know, was one of the volunteers in our study as a control, a normal control. And when the data came back, and I looked at them, these eight uh, controls, seven of them looked very normal, and one was very, very uh, pathological. And I asked the technician, I said, you got to check the PET scanner and everything, the provenance of this, these scans, because I don't, this can't be right. And, uh, you know, you've got one of the murders uh, mixed up with the, uh, the Alzheimer's controls. And it turned out, when I peeled the name back, it was me. Dr. Fallon thought there was no way he was a psychopath. And he kind of just brushed it off. But the science was there. And when the genetics came back, 
the same thing happened. All the other controls had an average mix of alleles, gene forms, of these different sort of warrior genes and empathy genes related to aggression and violence and lack of empathy in psychopaths. And mine, I inherited a whole bunch of them. It was like in this casino role of genes, I happened to get those. So I had the two biological markers of psychopathy, genetic and the brain pattern. And, and, but, you know, and I thought to myself, still something's missing because I'm not a psychopath. The last piece of proof? It came from other people, people who knew him really well. I asked uh, psychiatrists and neurologists who'd known me many, many years and knew some of my bad behaviors, and I asked them, I said, tell me what you really think about me. And, I, they, and they said, are you sure? And they just uh, unleashed, I said, unleashed, I asked for it. And they went through all of the behaviors over the years that are psychopathic. And they said, you're, prob you're borderline. And, and, uh, and I ended up taking the test for psychopathy, and I ended up... This, they all agreed that, that is the psychiatric report, the analysis, and the tests. And then I asked people close to me who were scientists, psychologists, and people who'd known me years. I said, Jim, we all know what you are. You just never listened. And, uh, you know, my, my lack of being, being able to be close to somebody is, you know, was very striking. So all of these things, I had to finally say, look, there's something to it. So I know some people would say, well, you, I'm a self-diagnosed psychopath. I'm a self-diagnosed normal person who came kicking and streaming uh, after years and years of this and tried to finally admit the kind of, I guess, the kind of jerk I am. Had people been telling you about your behavior before this and you, it was a matter of you not listening? Or, or was it yes. only until you came to them and say, is there something up that they actually told you? It's only when the whole banquet of all of the comments were put before me over the period of, of years and and people close to me saying, you know, when I read their letters, long letters on how disappointing I was. And these are people really, really, really close to me. And I just I just kind of shrugged all of it off. You know, when I found this out, I said, I didn't care. I really didn't care. In a way, I don't care. Going through puberty and through high school and then college and since then, usually about once a year, let's say, once a year to a, a priest, a rabbi, a teacher, professor, would say, you know, there's something really evil about you. And I, and I just kind of laughed at him. I figured that everybody was told this stuff. And, uh, but no, you know, they're not all told this stuff. And so uh, to this day, people, some people, uh, adults who meet me, there's something, they say there's something really evil about you. And that's been, that started when I was about 13. Dr. Fallon scores pretty high on the hair psychopathy checklist. He has a little more than 20 of the 40 traits listed. Anyone who has 28 to 30 or above is considered a psychopath. Dr. Fallon is a borderline psychopath, or more specifically, a so-called pro-social psychopath. So the, the pro-social part is, has more to do with the pro-social psychopath being able to uh, beat the system than actually being fully pro-social. You say, mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a misnomer. Sure. Uh, but the people who are like really full-blown psychopaths that are really antisocial are completely obnoxious people. And uh, many times they're, they're found out when they're like 15 or 16, right? Mm -hmm. The ones that are really smart, that can regulate themselves, they can go on and really cause some damage. But there's, there's kind of few of those people. Being self-aware about it, does that make you maybe feel bad about it? Or is it the same thing? You kind of are just able to shrug it off. But I don't, I, no, I don't feel bad about it. You know, I, I like my life, and it's like, oh, okay, that's, if I'm that way, then, 
then, then what does one do? I asked, you know, I said, what do you do in your personal life? And, and it's kind of changed my professional life, too. But personally, once I, I came to this realization, uh, um, I started to change my behavior toward my wife. So for a couple of months, I would do little things. And before I did anything with her, it could be as simple as who do you pour the wine for first? Do you clean up the dishes? But then it's like, well, if you're supposed to go on a trip in weekend weather, instead you go with your buddies out with a big, you know, a big drunken frolic. Or when you're supposed to be at a funeral, your aunt's funeral, instead you say, well, no, 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 I've been very busy or don't feel well, and then go off and party all weekend, which is what I do. And what I always done. So very small micro behaviors to larger things. And I started with the smallest stuff, and be, and there could be a, a maybe a hundred of these a day. And so when I was about ready to interact with her, my I, I I kind of cataloged my original instinct and then stopped for a moment and then just you know quickly said to myself, what, a, what would a good guy do? Or what would a regular guy do? And I did those things. And I did that a couple of months, and she says, I, what's come over you? She, you know, and, I, and she really liked it. And when I told her that, she said, well, that's great. And I said, but, you know, I, D, I said, you know, I don't, it's not sincere. You know, it's not coming from the heart. I'm just using my own kind of narcissism to say I can beat this. And she and then other people close to me, they said they didn't care. It was just like I was treating them better, and that's what was important. And that it kind of blew me away because I didn't, you know, I thought you had to be really quite sincere and everything, but it was just treating people better. And that's what I've been trying uh, to do. And the second part of that is yeah, I, I, I started watching people I know well, you know, and who have kids and with their family, with their parents, my age and younger. And I noticed that they were really sacrificing themselves for the people that, that they loved. And, that, and once I looked at all of them, I realized I wasn't doing those things. So even though I thought I was a good husband and a good mate and a good everything and a good friend, I, in fact, the actual behaviors weren't there. And that's so it was coming to that realization. So I've been for the past about two years trying to just stop for a moment and say, what, what, what's the correct, I say correct, what's the, what would a good guy do here? And, and so that's how I'm trying to deal with it. So sort of seeing how doing that affects the people around you, do you sort of wish that you had known about this earlier and had started doing that sooner? Oh, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is, is no. I, I think my effectiveness in my job and in, in, in navigating through life is that I don't stop and, and, and have to loop through my brain and, and try to say what's the empathetic good thing to do. I just do things, and it's made me uh, able to work quite quickly because I don't have to worry about people's feelings so much. And, you know, in that sense, I can work and, and react and behave much quicker than a lot of people and that, that I normally would have. Now, so I would have been a less effective person in all sorts of ways, but I would have been a, probably what people consider a better person. But I, you know, I... You know, I can tell you that, yes, I would have been great to, you know, I guess in a way that's true, but it's just because I know that's what I should say, okay? I know I'm supposed to feel and say that, but in fact, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's a shallow sort of thing if I tell you that. So, yeah, I guess that would be good, but it's not really in my heart, so to speak. I guess I'm just wondering what, how much of this is developmental, and how much of it is sort of hardwired, you know, because 
you were talking earlier about the brain scans and how you can visually see the difference. Uh, if you if you happen to just because you know just by chance you happen to inherit from your parents, one from each parent, a high number of aggression genes, you're kind of born really with a tendency toward aggression. Doesn't make you a psychopath. Doesn't make you a criminal. But uh, the same way with empathy. You could be, you can inherit of the, let's say, 15 genes that are coding for different kinds of empathy, very low interpersonal empathy. So if some kid is born just genetically with a very high percentage of aggression-related genes and a very low percentage of empathy, emotional empathy, well, there's a kid where the gun is being loaded with these bullets. But unless the, you know, the, the, the trigger is pulled, it's because the environment pulls the trigger on this. In those cases where you get a kid, and maybe, maybe it's only 10 or 15, 20% of kids that are born, they have these high percentage of uh, genes related to traits associated with psychopathy. Well, in those kids, from the time they're born till three years old, they're very, very susceptible to uh, uh, abandonment and abuse. Okay? And so those are the kids that are in trouble. That's the, 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 you know, the, the trigger that's pulled. It's hard to say because of this. Just because somebody's abused, that they're going to become a psychopath or something. That's not true. In fact, we don't see that. And, and there are kids who are born with all these genetics, it looks like, of, for psychopathy. Uh, but if they're treated well, they don't show it. So it's the intersection of the high-risk people with early abandonment and abuse in the first few years. If within those years you had been abandoned, where do you think you'd be now? I, I think it would have been... Uh, uh, been a real troublemaker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the things that, one of the sort of takeaways for me from talking to you is that this field, it's it seems really sort of frustrating to sort of study this because it's, it seems like people have a hard time agreeing on, you know, how to classify something or even like what to study. Do you feel that frustration? Oh, completely. And we've been working in... in we thought the last frontier was, was schizophrenia because we do uh, a lot of schizophrenia in genetic and imaging work. Uh, but the personality disorders are are underfunded, first of all, because most people, they don't want to do research on them. They just want psychopaths to go die, you know. And so it's very understudied. And like you mentioned, uh, the experts can't agree on what is what. I mean, what's really a psychopath? It's not. I mean, it doesn't even exist, right, in, in psychiatry. So we're still trying to figure out how to categorize these in, in a useful way, both clinically, but also in terms of, you know, how do we do experiments on people like that? Unless you can define it well, you, you can't even do any work on it. So you're very open about sort of being a narcissist and... Yeah and all of that. So I'm just wondering, you know, how has writing your book and sort of being all over the internet, having articles written about you, I saw that you did a TED Talk. I mean, how does that sort of feed into it? Well, how does it feed into it? I'm, I try to, if you look at the narcissism and the big ego, which I have, it's just completely obnoxious. And people put up with it because I'm kind of, I can, I'm fun to be around. And, and, and people who are interesting, I know a lot of interesting people. And you know, I think uh, people uh, tolerate some of my behavior because I'm fun, and but also I know a lot of interesting people. So that sort of thing, you know, why change it? And people who are around me, they accept it, and they accept and say, okay, it's obnoxious, but that's okay. Um, 
but you know, for me, to I, I'm trying. I'm so narcissistic. I'm trying not to be. You see. And so when I'm doing this, I say I have to. This can't be feeding my narcissism or any other sort of need. I have to do it. And I got to try to be really honest because I'm trying to beat myself. So instead of using people and manipulating people, I'm now trying to manipulate myself. Mm-hmm. And that's how I look at it. And it's you know as honest as I can be. That's what I try to do now. And uh, it's it's a game against and with myself. And so I'm using some of the psychopathic traits to kind of cure myself of the psychopathic traits. So I'm trying to use the, the natural ability, not really fight myself, but how do I, you know, mold that to, you know, to change my behavior? Can it be done? I'm really interested if it's possible to do it. You know, it, it, I don't think it can, but, you know, I'm narcissistic enough to think if it can be done, I'm the one that's going to do it. Dr. Fallon is trying to correct his behavior, but it's not coming from a sincere place. He's his own research subject testing the limits of his own mind. But is psychopathy developmental or hardwired in the brain? Is it possible to actually change a psychopath? Now we'll hear more from Fordham University professor Barry Rosenfeld about the potential treatment of psychopaths. I mean, this question of whether psychopaths can be treated has been going on for decades. And the early ideas were that the nature of psychopathy was such that you couldn't really successfully treat these people. They couldn't form an attachment to the therapist. You couldn't trust anything they said. They would just kind of game the system. And and some people even argued they would come out worse than they went in. Most research shows that it is harder to treat psychopaths, but that it's not impossible. So when I say harder, that means we're less successful, less often successful, and less often have what we would call uh, a strong treatment response. That doesn't mean that it's an untreatable phenomenon. So about 12 years ago, my colleague Michelle Gallietta and I started a program that we call Project SHARP, and that was originally intended to treat stalking offenders. And what, is, what does that stand for? Does SHARP it... stands for Stopping Harassment and Relationship Problems. Okay. So, uh, so we originally started that program treating stalking offenders. We gradually expanded it to other sorts of domestic violence and then gradually expanded it about six, seven years ago to really all a general offender treatment program. And one of the things that we did in the context of that, pro- of that project was we were measuring psychopathy. We were measuring psychopathy using a variation of the psychopathy checklist because we wanted to examine the extent to which we could treat people with psychopathy. We could get them engaged in treatment and, and, and have what we thought to be successful outcomes. So one of the things we noticed fairly quickly, we, we think we developed a really strong program and that we, we took some fairly innovative ways to develop a rapport with people who typically were court-ordered and didn't want to be there and certainly didn't want to talk to a therapist and didn't perceive themselves to have any problems. And that was true of everybody, not just the psychopaths. Um, But one of the things we found was that there was a substantial subset of the people with psychopathy who, if we could keep them long enough and if we could kind of get that foot in the door, we seemed to be able to develop a genuine therapeutic relationship with them. And we had a substantial number that we thought by the end of treatment we'd been successful with. Is this something that would be more effective when targeting adolescents, you know, people who are younger? There have been a number of relatively successful programs. You know, in kids we have, in adolescents, many of us are more uncomfortable applying the label psychopath. 
So instead, we look at, you know, we talk about, for example, callous and unemotional kids. The, the problem with the, the label psychopath is that it's a very pejorative label, and it really carries a tremendous amount of weight. And if you look at the research on youth psychopathy, what you won't see is a clear correspondence between psychopathic youth and psychopathy in adulthood. And we've always known that a lot of youthful offenders, juvenile delinquents, whatever you want to call them, kind of age out. They mature. They're less impulsive. They can delay gratification longer, and they pull it together. So they're badly behaved as adolescents, and they become successful and productive adults. Mm -hmm. So we're very reluctant to use that label. But there's been a number of studies now, uh, growing research suggesting that we can target these callous and unemotional kids. And that seems to be the hallmark of the, the more problematic adolescents. I want to ask you now about sort of the effectiveness of treatment in terms of psychopaths tend to be very manipulative. Do you think it's possible that they could be self-aware enough to realize that, you know, they exhibit these signs and maybe they'd be categorized in such a way that they would sort of consciously exhibit progress without actually progressing? Does that make sense? You mean fake it? Yeah, basically. Yeah, there's an expression in the criminal justice system uh, treatment world. I think they say fake it till you make it or something like that. Uh, you know, if somebody fakes it well enough such that they're not engaging in these behavior problems, if we were true behaviorists, we'd only say, are they engaging in the behavior problems or not? And if they're not, that's a good outcome. So, I mean, if the question is, are they deceitful? And is somebody who's highly psychopathic likely to, to, to lie to us when we're asking them how they're doing, when we're asking them, gee, have you had these thoughts about engaging in X, Y, or Z? Absolutely. Deceitfulness is a core symptom or characteristic. And, you know, often it's deceitfulness just for the sake of deceitfulness. What's, you know, what's, what's interesting and a little bit counterintuitive about psychopathy is that there's also a, a kind of a, a grandiosity and a... Uh, kind of a, a, a braggart style. So psychopaths like to talk about their exploits. And it's in some ways often interviewing a psychopath unless they're really highly motivated to cover it up. They can't wait to tell you about the things they've done, the people they've taken advantage of, the cons they've engaged in. Uh, so, you know, when we do interviews with really psychopathic individuals, they're often sort of remarkably forthcoming about all the negative traits that we're all sort of checking off on our checklist. Uh, it's certainly relatively easy for a smart psychopath to be deceitful selectively and successfully. And, you know, is it possible somebody's learned to be a more successful criminal offender? Yeah, it's possible. Part of that hinges on how bright the psychopath is. And, and there's not a relationship with IQ. There's also a lot that are, you know, it falls on the same IQ spectrum. And so most of them are average and half of them are below average, uh, intellectually speaking. Are there types of people who are more prone to becoming psychopathic than others? Or are there more men who exhibit these traits than women and things like that? Well, there are more men uh -huh. uh, than women. It's a little murky as to, as to whether that's conflated with how we conceptualize it. And we may not be very good at identifying the aspects of psychopathy that women exhibit. Or we may label it something different. You know, women who... If we think of it as something that is is largely environmentally driven, and this is a huge source of debate, whether it's biologically driven or environmentally driven. In fact, frankly, either of those explanations can still move you to the same outcome, which is that men and women might display those traits or those underlying characteristics differently just due to socialization. 
there are underlying, there's a number of hypotheses that are largely biological that people will point to as suggesting a vulnerability. So a lack of responsivity to fear cues, you know, coincides with risk taking, uh, a lack of anxiety. So the, the, the sort of prototypical psychopath is somebody who doesn't feel bad. They don't feel anxious or depressed. They act on impulse because they're sort of fearless. So a, a researcher in Florida, Chris Patrick, has a triarchic model of psychopathy and fearless uh, kind of boldness, I think is the term he uses, uh, is a core component of it. And, and I think many people would argue that that's biologically driven, that that's sort of hardwired, that there are some people who are just less prone to worry, more prone to, to that sort of impulsive, you know, jump with both feet uh, style. We don't have great evidence to support that. We've got a little bit of evidence to support that. But again, that's all retrospective. That's all looking at, you know, the brains of psychopaths and say, do they seem to be a little bit different rather than prospectively? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, one of the theories is that a lot of people are born with that predisposition and maybe it's the environment and maybe it's our socialization and maybe it's the you know, the, the, the parents imposing a strong sense of values that allows you to marshal that, you know, in a different way rather than, so maybe you become, you know, a, a professional athlete who can put everything out there as opposed to the person who, you know, robs and murders. Thanks a lot for coming in. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks to Dr. Fallon and Dr. Rosenfeld for joining me today. Dr. Fallon's book, The Psychopath Inside, a neuroscientist's personal journey into the dark side of the brain is available now. This has been Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. You can hear us every Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you've missed a show. They're all available to stream at WFUV.org or to download as a podcast. You can also like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. Stay tuned. George Bodarki and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.